This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. In a move breaking with decades of Southern Baptist Convention tradition, SBC President Ed Litton announced in a video March 1st that he does not intend to seek a second term as president of the nation's largest non-Catholic denomination. That's under the headline from Baptist News Global, SBC President Ed Litton will not seek a second term. It's also a story with Religion News Service and the Associated Press. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So is this Ed Litton story just a Southern Baptist Convention story, or is it something that people outside the SBC need to pay attention to? Well, I mean, for starters, we need to go ahead and say that eventually this is going to be interpreted as a Donald Trump story. There's some things I'd like to talk about before we get to that. But let's, first, let's have a history lesson. How old were you in 1979? Yeah, I was 15 years old. Okay. The Southern Baptist Convention in 1979 went into what is frequently referred to as a civil war. And the whole point of this battle was over the concept of biblical inerrancy. But in the background loomed what you could only call the Ronald Reagan era. And in particular, what loomed there was Roe v. Wade. And this growing sense that America was becoming a culturally more liberal place. And a group of very theologically conservative people, but they were the point on a spear of a larger coalition, were taking on Southern Baptists that were called the moderates. And the, the key thing I want people to know is anytime you put a 15 million person denomination up for grabs, the largest non-Catholic flock in the American religion. It's a big story. The other thing is that civil war not only was linked to the Reagan era, it was linked to massive sweeping changes in the American South. And the American South was becoming much more powerful economically and politically and culturally. And I, I've argued that in the 60s and throughout the 70s, as the mainline Protestant churches started their sharp decline. That's what created the space in the public square for evangelicalism to become kind of what it is today, which is the most public face of non-Catholic Christianity in America and something with which the press is absolutely obsessed with, white evangelicals and Trump in particular. Well, now we have what I truly believe is the beginning of a potential war again for control of the Southern Baptist Convention. And listeners need to understand that who the president of the Southern Baptist Convention names the committees that basically run the convention. If you hold the presidency for like 
four, five, six, seven years, you eventually can change the board of directors, the boards of all of the major seminaries, agencies, etc., etc. It's an extremely powerful position, and it's um it's up for grabs in these amazing meetings where churches send messengers. The convention only exists while it's in session, and it is a reporters love it. It's it's like a free for all, and the rhetoric is always spectacular because let's face it, whatever Southern Baptist people can do, they can preach, and you throw in any other social issues that get put on the side, and it's a spectacular show. For a long time, the Religion News Writers Association of America used to have almost all of its annual meetings at the SBC because we always knew that that's what editors would want because that's what was producing headlines. So why do we think this could be a new war? Well, first of all, Ed Litton, the man who is breaking a very important tradition and standing down after only one year as president, Lytton was elected in a very close election. And you had the usual charges that different people had stacked the votes or they had bussed people in or the agencies had made sure that all their people got the politics to some degree. But it, like I said, it is a bit of a free-for-all at these conventions. So the conservative Baptist network will certainly come back with one strong candidate. And the issue is going to be who do the mainstream Baptists come up with as a candidate or candidates if they don't blow it on the first ballot and let the other side get elected by splitting the vote, who's going to be the new face of the Southern Baptist Convention? And to make a long story short, it's a big deal this time to me, as someone who watched the first Civil War, someone who grew up Baptist in Texas and had family involved in this at various and sundry levels, I keep asking myself, what's the theological issue here? Because the current leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention are way more theologically conservative than some, not all, but some of the people who were in the leadership of the convention in 1979 when the other Civil War began. I mean, for example, most of our listeners would not believe there was a time when the Southern Baptist Convention was pretty openly pro-abortion rights, or at the very least said, that's a church-state issue, the Catholics want that, we better leave it alone. And the Southern Baptist norm was that you're supposed to stay out of politics altogether, which frankly was pretty good for Democrats in states like Texas and Georgia and Alabama and whatever. So that war was a huge change in American evangelicalism. And I would argue that if the SBC goes back to war now, and there really isn't a theological issue, and it really is more cultural and political, it could be it could be like driving a wedge into American evangelicalism in general and could catapult us further into the, the age of non-denominational Protestantism and 
that's one of the most powerful stories in American religion today, and this would really just speed that up. Someone from outside this story might be kind of curious because it's a one-year term, and that's why it's traditionally sought a second term. Those who have traditionally sought a second term there do because you don't get a lot done in a year. I don't know how much there is for the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to do, but he says in one of the stories that he believes he's accomplished his goals. I have a hard time believing anyone could even formulate goals in one year in office before well, leaving. I would argue that he did two very important things, and maybe three. First of all, this has been a tumultuous year for the Southern Baptist Executive Committee on the issue of sexual abuse. And we've had a lot of people leave that and a lot of new faces come in. And they're now trying to pick a new leader of the Southern Baptist Executive Committee. And that's the person who's in charge of running the convention when it's not in session. So in some ways, that's like the chief operating officer of the SBC. The president is the face of the convention, the voice of the convention, and like I just said, gets to name the people who are on the committees that run everything to one degree or another. And if you're in office two years, there you go. You've got two of your four to eight years or six years you need to turn the convention over. It's also significant that in the old days, whoever was elected the first vice president often moved up to become the president. So you had a kind of uh, administrative stability there. And also, everybody used to go to the pastor's conference before the convention to hear who did the most spectacular preaching because that was often considered people auditioning to get the nod to be a strong candidate for president. So, I mean, that was the old days. Now it's, it's much more social media and free form and people yelling at each other on blogs and Twitter and everything else. The, the divisiveness of social media is a key part of this. So he would say that he got the crucial decision made to bring in an outside group to evaluate the sexual abuse actions and mistakes of the executive committee. And that's a very huge thing because I think you and I have talked about the fact that Southern Baptists don't really have a polity that allows them to require churches to do anything. So if the SBC tried to, say, have a ironclad policy against sexual abuse, the key issue would be, well, how do you enforce that? The power of the denomination theologically is at the local congregational level. So and if you created a national agency, let's say you made the executive committee responsible somehow for policies to prevent sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, as if you could do that. The big question is, is that a body that can be sued by victims of sexual abuse in churches? If there is like a clearinghouse to where anyone who's been accused of sexual abuse has to have your name on the official blacklist of the SBC. But somehow someone sneaks around it and gets into a church 
as a youth leader or a pastor and does a lot of sexual abuse, can you sue the denomination? Now, Lutherans have got structure. Catholics have surely got structure. The Episcopalians have structure. The Orthodox have structure. The Baptists don't have structure. It's hard to know who to sue in the Southern Baptist Convention unless you're dealing with an individual institution like a seminary or uh, the Foreign Mission Board or something like that. Well, I know I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of wandering the field here, but the sexual abuse thing is a huge issue. The other big issue is race. And here I'd like to cut aside for a second and give our listeners a kind of an alternative image to think about right now. You may have heard that the United Methodists are also on the verge of a huge split and that a crucial factor in this split is the fact that African Methodists and Asian Methodists and in some cases not all Latino Methodists tend to be more conservative theologically than the kind of Methodist establishment here in the United States. And what we're, when this split occurs, if and when it finally does, you're going to end up with a more liberal church in the United States. But the evangelicals in the United States are going to become a part of something that could be quite remarkable, which is a truly global United Methodist church in which white Christians in America are now a minority. And the growing segment and power in the church moves to Africa and Asia. And for some people, this is kind of exciting in the sense that it would certainly be an alternative, evangelical, in every sense of the word, voice that would be kind of harder to predict, you know, where they are, that they would be have issues that are bigger than American politics. It would be global. But it would also be very racially and culturally diverse. Now, let's come back to the Southern Baptist Convention for a second. If there is some kind of split in the SBC and a much more politically and perhaps theologically conservative body emerges, what happens to everybody else? I would argue that the actual theological issue that's most up for grabs here is whether racism is essentially a political and theological issue or whether it's at its basis a theological issue. But here's the deal. It seems to me that when conservatives in the SBC say that the convention is getting woke and they become liberal, they're primarily talking about politics. And this is, frankly, where the Trump era kind of fits in. And one of the most important parts of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the parts of it that's still growing, is its African-American churches, Latino churches, Asian churches, etc. This entire fight might be over the fact that the current leadership, Ed Litton and the previous president, some of the, the leaders of the, what's now the Baptist mainstream. They're very theologically conservative on social issues, the Bible. Some of them may be leaning a little bit on the ordination of women. That's another 
hot issue, and that is a theological issue. But in a congregational church, you're not supposed to be able to stop local churches from doing what they want to do for their leadership, right? I would argue the real issue here is the diversity of voices among black Southern Baptists. And on an issue like critical race theory, they're saying something that is really hard to put in news stories and in public debates. It seems to me that African-American Southern Baptists are for the most part saying, we believe that the root cause of racism is sin. But we also believe that in a sinful fallen world, that sin can soak into institutions. And thus there are some, I repeat, some elements of critical race theory that they think are worth discussing, even if they outright reject the secular nature of critical race theory. So the question here is, to what degree do you listen to the black leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention and take some of their political and cultural and social views into account? To what degree do you welcome them, hold them up for leadership, etc.? Now, it's going to be very interesting to see if the hardcore conservatives, for lack of a better term, the Trump-era conservatives, if black voices emerge over there, things could get really interesting quick. I hope that wasn't too confusing. But the, what I want our listeners to know is they watch this story develop. Keep asking the question, what's the theological issue that's dividing these people? What divides them when it comes to the Bible or sexual morality or other social and moral issues. And then, frankly, we're going to have to watch and see if the press does a decent job of covering the theological views of black conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention. I've been very disturbed by the degree to which that we've gone through like two years of heightening tension and debates about Black Life Matters and a whole lot of other racial issues. And we're just not seeing the press look at the voices of black Christians in mainstream and especially in conservative and charismatic traditions in the United States. Black Christians in America, as a rule, tend to be very theologically conservative, but they are much less predictable politically. And as we've all observed, Latinos are beginning to become less predictable as well. So I ended up on politics, and that's dangerous for me, but uh, I think it's an important point to make. Terry, you wanted to talk about Bob Smitana's piece in Religion News Service on the Lytton decision. Yeah, I, th I think it's a very good story, and it's not surprising in that because Bob is someone who worked in Nashville at the Nashville Tennessean and then actually worked in an agency linked to the Southern Baptist Convention as a researcher and writer for a couple of years. He has tons of great sources, and he speaks Southern Baptist very fluently, let's put it that way. And he, he mentions in his story that Lytton got caught up in what became known as Sermon Gate, which is the fact that pastors frequently 
share sermon notes and outlines with each other and, and often don't credit each other for those the way they should. This can turn into plagiarism, or it could be evidence of kind of a good old boys network that share a lot of work and ideas. And preaching, of course, is maybe the only sacrament for Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist is the quality of preaching. It's a good story, and I would recommend it to people. And in it, you get to hear a lot of talk about racial reconciliation and some kind of a setup for where this could be going. I don't think there's any question that arguments about critical race theory and the degree to which it's condemned is going to be a huge issue at this upcoming convention. And see, it's a thin line between saying we reject parts of CRT, especially the parts that conflict with Scripture and are signs of a acidic secularism, while the other side's wanting to say, we want you to reject CRT totally. And the problem there is that black churches don't accept CRT totally, and they don't reject it totally. They think that some ideas in it are worth discussing, and they certainly believe that systematic racism is a sign of sin at an institutional level. So can the press cover a theological debate about race without turning it straight into some sort of clash between white Christian nationalism and people who are not racist? And they're going to imply that one side is racist and the other isn't. This is why I think it's so important that people start listening to the black voices that could emerge on both sides of this debate. What did you make of the AP's treatment of the story? Good basic early report. I think there's one thing that needs to be emphasized here, which is that there have already been some very public leaders in the SBC who have made headlines by their departures if not from the SBC altogether, certainly from common fellowship with the SBC. And two people both named Moore, but they're not related. Perhaps the best-known writer in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last decade or two and Bible teacher has been Beth Moore. It's probably a name you know. I don't know if you've ever had her on issues. Beth Moore is an extremely popular evangelical writer and speaker. And when she walked away from the Southern Baptist Convention in parts over its botching of some of the elements of the sexual abuse scandals, she joined an Anglican church, at which point the liberals went, look, she's become an Episcopalian. But if you know enough about Anglicanism versus Episcopalianism in the United States right now, you know that there frequently are big differences between Anglicans and Episcopalians. And this is certainly one of those cases. She joined what is a theologically very conservative congregation. I'm sure Lutherans don't have any understanding of that at all in terms of the press, not understanding that the Missouri Synod is not exactly the same thing as the ELCA. Y'all never have any trouble with that? Oh, we constantly have trouble with it. <laughs> well, that that's my point. You have I mean, to fact check it completely all the time. Yeah, completely all the time. A good way of saying it. Meanwhile, then you had Russell Moore, the leader of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, who now is attending a kind of non-denominational, reformed, kind of Presbyterian church 
in the Nashville area. Once again, very theologically conservative, but the fact that he stepped away from being a part of a Southern Baptist-linked congregation was seen as a very big deal. And I bring all that up simply to say, no matter what happens in this Southern Baptist war, if there is a new one, it's going to push people in both directions, to the right and to the more conservative center. It's going to push people in both directions into non-denominational Christianity or into a diverse array of evangelical settings, whether that's in an evangelical Anglicanism, whether it's in the Presbyterian Church USA. They could go all over the place. And the more we move into this non-denominational age, the harder it's going to be to make large, simplistic statements about evangelicalism, whatever that is. The movement is going to get harder and harder to define, and some papers are going to call the actions of non-denominational, independent, in some cases truly radical, evangelical and charismatic churches, they're going to say that they stand for evangelicalism, something that's happened in the Washington Post over and over in the last couple of years, especially since Jan 6th. It's going to get harder and harder to define what evangelicalism is and who are its true leaders. And man, a crack up in the Southern Baptist Convention would make all of that so much more complex. There's a reason that the patriarch of Get Religion, uh, Richard Osling, has he's up to like five or six now, I think, memos that he's written for our website that all boil down to, are evangelicals cracking up? And if so, where are they going? And what does that mean for a religion in America? If we have all-out war to replace Ed Litton, as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dick is going to have to write another 10 or 12 memos. Okay, so with about a minute and a half here, one red flag in the AP story that appeared for me was the adjective ultra-conservative. Yeah. And it appeared twice in the same context of how Lytton yep. had kind of beaten off this attempt to beat him from the ultra-conservative candidate and wing. What do you make of that adjective? Well, see, once again, what's the theological issue we're arguing about here? Is it biblical authority? Is it salvation? What's the theology? I think the terminology is easier when you have people who are openly identifying themselves as fundamentalists. They have a different view of Scripture, and they're going to openly claim that, like Jerry Falwell claimed it for so many years. They're trying to draw a difference between the normal conservatives in the SBC, in the current leadership, and the folks who are attacking them for being woke, which isn't really a theological term. I know I'm beating this drum really loud. The press is going to go crazy trying to define who these people are that are clashing, except describing it in political terms. And that's why I say the, the question the press has to keep asking people on both sides, what's the theological issue here? What are you guys actually fighting about? Is it race, sexual abuse? Is it Donald Trump? 
what are people fighting about and what does it have to do with their theological beliefs? Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks for your time. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.